Um, so this is entitled, The Word of the Lord Spreads. Well, it could be also entitled, The Word of the Lord Spreads and Divides. I don't know if you picked that up from what we've just uh, read. Well, what did the Lord of the uh, Word of the Lord uh, divide, and why did it divide? As we've just read, it divided the Jews uh, and Gentiles from each other because of the sin of jealousy and envy. Before we look further into this, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been jealous and envious of somebody or something? Well, the famous author, playwright and poet Shakespeare referred to jealousy in the play Othello as the green-eyed monster. Has the green-eyed monster ever reared its ugly head in your life at all? Now, jealousy is the fear of something which we possess will be taken away from by another person. Jealousy is actually quite an emotive sin. One that God cautioned Cain in saying, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Cain didn't rule over it, of course, and the outworking of that jealousy was that he killed his brother, Abel. Now, God himself also uses the word jealousy, but in a completely different context. His jealousy is holy jealousy, a perfect jealousy. For example, God doesn't want that bond that he has with you, with us, broken because we sin through idol worship, because we elevate something else over God. God also told the nation of Israel not to worship other gods. That's a small g. Because God has a covenant relationship with Israel that he likened to a husband and wife relationship. God said in Deuteronomy 4, regarding idolatry, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now envy is a similar emotion to jealousy, but it's wanting something which belongs to somebody else. Another word for envy in the Bible that we refer to is to covet something. God commanded against this in Exodus Of course, it's part of the Ten Commandments. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, the Jews in Antioch were filled with jealousy and envy because of Paul's preaching. And in a moment, we'll see why. But let's just recap on what Graham brought last week. We saw last week that the message of salvation under the new covenant is not based on following the law of God as given to Moses, but on the grace of God. We saw that Paul delivered his first sermon to the Jews in Antioch, explaining from the Old Testament how Jesus was the promised Messiah who saw no earthly decay, but was raised up. Jesus is the only person to fulfill all of the requirements of the law. And therefore, everyone who believes in Jesus is justified through him, by faith through him. Salvation is now freely available to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, through belief in God's Son, Christ Jesus. To the Jews, this must have been an absolute stunning Revelation. It must have been absolutely stunning news. And not everyone, of course, as we've just read, was happy with this news. 
And we see here there is rise in opposition to this message. Now opposition to the word of God is nothing new. Wherever God has a witness, there you will find opposition. Whether that witness is the church or, as in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. And if there's no opposition in the community, then we must ask ourselves, what kind of a witness are we being? John, sorry, Jesus said in John 16.33, of opposition, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now if you became a Christian thinking that you could be like one of those tele-evangelists that seems so super spiritual and life is oh so wonderful for them and unfortunately you're sold a lie. Jesus said that we will have trouble. We will have trouble in this world and this trouble will come in all kinds of different forms. But, but there is hope in this verse, because Jesus says that he has overcome the world. And because of this, we can place our hope and trust in him. Christians around the world today are facing trouble for their faithful witness to Christ. We have heard and seen in the media recently about the Christians in China who are being persecuted. In fact, Cody Kess, the vice president of China Aid, said recently, It's unprecedented persecution against the church where church leaders are going to prison, are being sent to mental institutions. Can you believe that? Christians being sent to mental institutions. Are being beaten and tortured and where crosses have been forcibly removed from now over 1,800 churches since 2014. There are policies that are coming out that come directly from the central government to basically persecute the Christian church in China. They are being a faithful witness to God, for God, and yet they're being persecuted. There is rising opposition to Christians in China, and we must pray for the Christians in China and abroad, Turkey, like we've heard. So persecution is nothing new, and we see straight away here in verse 45, the Jews are filled with jealousy and envy because of the message that Paul was preaching. And the outworking of this jealousy and envy was that they were actively contradicting and they were heaping abuse on him. In fact, the King James Version actually says that the Jews were actually blaspheming. So they weren't content in not only slandering Paul and his message, but they're actually cursing God. These were people who knew the words of God They knew the truth and yet they chose to try and disrupt Paul's message by disputing and arguing against him and cursing God himself. Can you believe it? Which in of itself reveals the true character of these kinds of people? They were probably people who were very religious, who said all the right things, who dutifully obeyed the law of God and attended synagogue every Saturday and yet faced with a message that could set them free from the law and the obligations of the law, they actively opposed it. Some people, of course, are like this. They say and do all of the right things, 
and yet they're just going through the motions and they're actually far from God. They don't know the true freedom of what Christ's death on the cross has truly brought them. Now Jesus warned us of these very people. If you've got a Bible, please open it to Matthew 7. We'll just read these words. Matthew 7, 15 to 23. Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 15, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruits, that is, by the outworking of their actions, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Still with me? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's an analogy, of course, for the lake of fire that's in hell. Thus, by their fruit, their their actions, their outworkings, you will recognize them. Then Jesus goes on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who professes to be a Christian will be in heaven. We might be surprised by who's actually there and who's not there. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that is on the day of judgment, when we stand before God, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Wow. Looking around the world today, we see plenty of examples of those kind of people that profess with their lips one thing, and yet they walk the walk, talk the talk, and walk out the door doing something completely different. Of course, we've seen that recently with scandal after scandal after scandal in the Catholic Church. People who profess to be holy and yet are abusing other people. Those people, Jesus said, even if they cast out demons in his name, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus will not know them. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now we too need to ensure that we are bearing good fruit and not bad fruit. Even if we've given our lives fully to God and he is the center of all that we do, now, a good example of this is a little analogy is we've, we've been reading recently is in a book by Paul David Tripp on parenting. I think it's always good to have a, a book recommendation for the front, and this is, so far it's quite good. Let me just read this to you. God rescues you from you. It's entitled, this section. When you are frustrated, mad, discouraged, unkind, abusive, bitter, joyless, vengeful, or irritated as a parent, you don't so much as need to be rescued from your children, you need to be rescued from you. Pretend that I have a bowl of water in my hands and I shake it vigorously and the water splashes out of the bowl. And suppose I ask you, why are the water splashed out of the bowl? And you answer, 
that it spilled because I shook it. It all sounds pretty logical, doesn't it? But the answer is only partially correct. Why did water splash out of the bowl? Because water was in the bowl. If the bowl had been filled with milk, you could shake it for an eternity and water would never spill out of it. In the same way, it's very important for parents to understand and humbly admit that when we are shaken by the sin, weakness, rebellion, foolishness, or failure of our children, what comes out of us in words, actions, and attitudes is what is already inside of us. This means that my biggest ongoing problem as a dad is not my children, it's me. My children don't cause me to do and say what I do and say. No, the cause of my actions is found inside my own heart. My children are simply the occasion where my heart reveals itself in words and actions. So in other words, children see the fruits of our lives. And even if you haven't got children, there will be people who are close to you who will see the fruit of your life. So the whole city is there listening to Paul and Barnabas. They're listening to what they're saying. And despite this uh, opposition, what actually happens is they actually grow bold and make it clear to those Jews listening that it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to them first, but since they reject the message, they preach to the they will preach instead to the Gentiles. Let's not forget that God called the nation of Israel to be his witnesses for him in the earth. They were supposed to be his light to the nations. As it says in Isaiah 42 verse 6, I the Lord have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. Now we know that the Jews were already living amongst the Gentiles because of what we read in Acts chapter 2, if you can cast your mind that far back. I actually preached on Acts chapter 2. This was when, of course, uh, we read about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit descended. And we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, basically all of the kind of the known world at that time were represented there on the day of Pentecost. And as we know, 3,000 people became to know the Lord. Now, we don't know if this was the full extent of how far the Jews had gone into all the nations to be a witness for God. But it's clear that they uh, were doing that, and there were also converts who were also present there that come to uh, uh, Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. But the point is, no longer did the Jews have to point to the law, they now had to point to the Messiah. This was the calling of the Jews to be salt and light, and this is what Paul and Barnabas are pointing out. This is what they are fulfilling. They quote from a different place, of course, in Isaiah. 49 verse 6, it says, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And this is why it's wonderful news when a Jew becomes a Christian. 
because he has the benefit of uh, the, the ancestry from Adam, uh, sorry, from Abraham, as, as it were. But now he's come to the full realization of his Messiah has come and he is now, a, if you like, a completed Jew. They truly receive all of what God has got for them. Now, the Gentiles rejoice at this news and praise God. And we see an interesting statement here. And all who have been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, if you subscribe to the Calvinistic theology of predestination, you'll recognize this as one of the proof texts. However, God may appoint and draw to himself those he chooses to eternal life, but we are still free to refuse that. It does not absolve us from the responsibility of trusting in God and believing in the message of salvation. As Jesus said himself in Matthew 22, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Meaning that many, are peop- many people are called into the kingdom of God, but only few respond and are therefore chosen. Many Gentiles heard and believed the message from Paul and Barnabas, and as a result came to faith. And these then spread the word throughout the whole region. However, those blaspheming, jealous Jews had already caused trouble, caused women of high standing who worshipped in the synagogue and the leaders of the city to expel Paul and Barnabas from the area. Those jealous religious Jews had clearly decided now was time to act and time to get rid of, in their eyes and in their thinking, the troublemakers who had taken their followers. And then Paul and Barnabas do something quite extraordinary. I don't know if you noticed it. They shake the dust off their feet. Now this was a sign to the Jews of that city that Paul and Barnabas considered them to be no better than pagans. And they did not want any part in the judgment that God would uh, give them for rejecting the gospel message. Jesus told his disciples to just do this symbolic action as well. We read of it in Matthew 10. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Jesus makes a comparison that by rejecting the gospel message, it would be more bearable for the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for the city that had just rejected the gospel message. And these were two cities, of course, as we know, were destroyed by fire from heaven. However, the new disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out rejoicing. They had received the truth of the gospel and their truth had truly set them free. No longer were they constrained to following the obligations of the law. But now they had the truth of the word of Christ living in their heart. So Paul and Barnabas are ejected from the region. They're ejected and they flee to Iconium. Now this was a city about 80 miles away from Antioch. About the same distance from here to the outskirts of London. Or about from here to Stoke-on-Trent. 
where I went to university. No small distance, but I should imagine less traffic on the roads. Paul and Barnabas go straight to the temple because it's now the Sabbath. Not only were the temple courts the natural meeting place, but of course Paul and Barnabas were preaching to an already uh, a God-fearing audience. People who knew and understood the concept of sin and the need for redemption. However, the same kind of stirring up from the religious Jews occurs that happened in Antioch. Those that refuse the message seek to gain allies to their cause by deliberately distorting the message that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. Today, of course, we call this fake news. It's because of this level of opposition that Paul and Barnabas feel the need to counteract their narrative that they are distorting the fake news that's coming out and they spend some considerable time, some considerable length of time there preaching the truth and they continue to build up the believers. And did you notice something here regarding signs and wonders that Paul and Barnabas did? Verse 3 says, chapter 14, So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace. It was, so it was the Lord who confirmed his word or the message that the apostles were preaching. Signs and wonders specifically followed the work of the apostles because the Jews would not believe without them. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1, the Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. And a sign in this context means a miracle. And Paul continues in Corinthians by saying, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Why was it a stumbling block to Jews? Well, for the Jews, the idea that the Messiah would come to earth as a man and die on a cross was a stumbling block. They couldn't believe that the Messiah could die on a tree, which in Deuteronomy 21, God had said was cursed. To the Gentiles, that is us, the very notion that the Son of God coming to earth and then being executed as a common criminal is a ridiculous notion. And of course, we see the same kind of people today thinking that's just crazy. However, the Jews wouldn't accept the gospel message without God confirming it by the sign of miracles. Signs and wonders do not testify to the apostles, but to the message of salvation preached by them. Does this mean, of course, that we shouldn't expect miracles when we pray? Not at all. But if we witness any, or if any should happen to us, then we should ensure that God receives all the glory and honor. Our God is a miracle-working God. His nature hasn't changed. And as I've said in the past, I've personally been witness to miracles, and miracles have happened to me. So, if you want to discuss that further, I'm happy to discuss that further after the service. Let's move on. So, Paul and Barnabas spend some considerable time building the faith of the new converts. But there is rising jealousy and envy once again. 
So much so that the religious Jews began, managed to divide the city into two camps. Those that accepted the message of salvation and those that completely rejected it. Now Paul and Barnabas weren't any shrinking violence, violets. As it says in James 1, they considered opposition and persecution pure joy because this was the testing of their faith. And this testing produces perseverance. They stood firm in the face of opposition. Now the four and a half year long Asher's court case is a good example, good modern example, of standing firm in the face of opposition. If you're not aware of this, this is uh, the Ashes Baking Company were taken to court in 2015 for refusing to bake a cake with a pro-gay marriage campaign slogan on it. The MacArthur family, who own the Ashes Baking Company, turned down the order because it conflicted with their Christian belief that marriage is between a man and a woman. The ruling handed down on the 10th of October, so only a few weeks ago, saw the judges unanimously vindicate the bakery. One of the judges on the Supreme Court, Lord Dyson, held that the principle applied as much to political opinions as it did to religious belief. The quotation is, nobody should be forced to have or express a political opinion in which he does not believe. Praise God for that vindication. Praise God for that result. Praise God for them standing firm in the face of persecution and opposition. So there are victories when people pray, when God's people pray. Let us not forget that Paul and Barnabas and ourselves today are actually in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when we see rising opposition and persecution, we are seeing a manifestation of the evil spiritual forces that so hate us. Our defense against this, of course, is the word of God, the shield of faith, everything it describes in, it goes on in Ephesians 6, and prayer. Paul goes on in, in Ephesians 6.18, and pray in the Spirit on all kinds of prayers, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. In other words, stay awake. I think some of the parts of the church today need to actually wake up. And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So we stand in the face of opposition, just like Paul and Barnabas did, or until the situation changes. And that's what we see happen next. The Jews start to build up enough support they need to take physical action. But it must have taken some time for these dissenters to build the support that they needed because Paul and Barnabas were able to spend some considerable time there, as the scripture says. However, once they had got the Gentiles, uh, the Jews, on board, they then hatched a plan to kill them. Now, death by stoning is actually a very Jewish form of punishment. So it must have meant that the Jews were behind this plot to kill them. They were the masterminds. And as soon as Paul and Barnabas discover this plot, 
They remember the advice of Jesus in Matthew 10. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. But in fleeing the plots to kill them, they don't just sit back on their laurels and admire their accomplishments. No, they go on preaching. They continue to preach throughout the, the area, Lystra and Derby. They continue to preach the gospel along the way. Instead of hiding, they keep on preaching. So in summary, what are we to learn from this account of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey? Now I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon about the green-eyed monster of jealousy and envy at the beginning. And this is what the word of God that Paul and Barnabas were preaching actually exposes. It says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In essence, this is what happens when the word of God is preached. It reaches in and causes contention and division between our soul, that's our emotions, and our spirit, that's our eternal quality. It highlights and exposes the sin that's in our hearts, whether that is jealousy or envy or something else. And like the parable of the sower, our hearts now are that prepared ground that the truth of the word of God can take hold. And it allows the Holy Spirit to bring about change so that we bear good fruit. So I guess I've kind of got four, four kind of closing points. Fruit, witness, perseverance, and assurance. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. You will recognize them. Let us be recognized by the good works, the good fruit that we produce. From this witness of our lives and testimony of our mouths, let us pray for every opportunity to share the gospel. We should not be surprised that persecution arises when we are being that witness that God has called us to be in the community. But we should consider it pure joy that the testing of our faith will bring about perseverance. God has assured us that in this spiritual battle, that when we take a stand for him, he is with us even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's just pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the faithful witness of your servants down through the ages. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the faithful witness of Paul and Barnabas that they stood in the face of opposition and persecution, Lord. They stood for you. They stood for the truth. They did not let or allow the false narrative, the fake news that was being produced to deter them, to dissuade them, Lord. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we today, when we do take a stand, that there are victories, Lord, that you do bless us. And we do see evil not winning the day, but Lord, you winning the day. Help us, Heavenly Father, to take advantage of every opportunity, Lord, to preach this good message, this message, this gospel message, this good news to those around us. And help us, Heavenly Father, to seize hold of every opportunity to do this. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.